Good morning. My name is Brad Strom. As, as some of you know, some of you may not, I am not Brad Dunlap. That is our pastor, and he is on a well-deserved vacation along with some other families in our fellowship. And so uh, got to uh, the opportunity to come and talk to you today. Uh, I'm so excited to continue this series on grace that we started last week. Last week, Chris Stewart started us off, uh, and, and he kind of talked talk to us what grace is, looking at, at what all is afforded through God's grace, and reminded us that grace Grace in regard to our standing with God means that Jesus accepts us. He forgives us and loves us completely. He accepts, forgives, and loves us completely. And he offered that challenge to us that I prayed a moment ago uh, for this series and onward in our lives that we need to rest in that finished work of Jesus. We need to find our sanctuary there, rest in that finished work work of grace that Jesus accomplished for us. Because grace is not only receiving the forgiveness and justification that Jesus offers us through the work of the cross, but believing that that work is complete. Realizing that there is no other work to do to please God. Therefore, it is integral to the Christian faith that we believe that grace is sufficient. Chris reminded us of the cost of the grace we received, that it was costly. It's not something that just happened. God did all the work of salvation for us. It cost us nothing, and it cost him everything. His one and only son, Jesus, had to die that we might live. For us to be justified and seen as righteous, justice had to be satisfied. And the brutal work of the cross, the shed blood of Christ, purchased our redemption and is given freely. Uh, as I was thinking through that, I thought I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 6.20 that reminds us that we are all bought with a price. The great grace is given to us. It cost God greatly. The great grace that is given to us cost God greatly. And sadly, as believers, we tend to cheapen that grace. Uh, we have an excitement about it when we first come to know the Lord. We are excited. We are all in. We're like, man, this is uh, grace alone has saved me. And we're telling people about it. But over time, uh, some things creep back into our life, and that grace is cheapened. We forget the great cost uh, that it was purchased with. And we at times uh, act out of a belief that the grace Jesus is offering is not enough. We say we believe grace is sufficient, but our actions would say that, you know what, uh, there must be something else. It must be a grace plus. There must be something else I need to do. Um, some of us, whether consciously or subconsciously at times, live, live as if we need to supplement this grace that we have received, that our works need to be added to the work of Christ. That when Jesus said his final words on the cross, it is finished, our actions seem to say he must have been mistaken. That we, uh, there must be something else we need to do. We must live in a certain way, or we just find, and then all of a sudden we're finding ourselves in slavery to either Old Testament law or even a law of our own making. Others use grace as a, as a free license. I'm, I'm forgiven now and to eternity, and uh, it cheapens the costly grace uh, because it causes us to look past sins when we treat, treat grace that way, saying, well, that's just our culture, or that's just, that's just who I am. Uh, that's not a big deal. I'm forgiven. I have grace. In this scenario, we are slaves to the very sin which we would, that, that grace would free us from. I love the song we sang very first thing, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, because in our scripture today, we're going to see just how faulty of a life that is. That, that the grace that is sufficient in Christ and his work on the cross is the truly solid rock 
we can stand on. And all other ground we would move towards is sinking sand. Uh, our scripture today reveals that uh, Paul is writing to the Galatians who are cheapening grace by adding to the work of Jesus. And Paul had helped launch these faith communities with the true gospel anchored in the message that we are saved by grace alone. As a reminder, Paul opens and closes this letter offering grace to the Galatians and proclaiming to his readers the free gift of the finished work of salvation. So why then did Paul even feel the need to write this letter? He got them started off well. Uh, what was going on? What's at the center of this? Uh, and, and that's what we find is his purpose is to combat false teaching. After Paul left, some, some other teachers snuck in and, and they're starting to tell the Galatian churches that, hey, uh, man, I'm so glad you're part of this, this Christian life, that you're part of a Christian fellowship. Now you follow Jesus. But, but hey, if you really want to be on board, uh, there's, there's some other things we think you need to do. Uh, and, and specifically, they're, they're telling them, we need you to follow some of the Jewish law still so, and, and, and follow through with this law of circumcision. And so we want to look at Galatians 5. We're going to look at 1 through 9 one more time. Uh, and let's explore what's happening as Paul laments their falling away from grace. For it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I find it interesting that as the book of Galatians opens and, and throughout the, the opening uh, chapters of it, Paul greatly magnifies his credentials. He's doing this because he very much wants to disprove that the teachers who have come and offered this other way are, are not preaching to you the true gospel, that, that he was the one that brought it. He was the one that had authority to bring this gospel to you that, that is true. And what they are adding needs to be refuted. Uh, he's seeking to pull, they're, they're seeking to pull the Christ, Galatian church back under the law. And when we get to chapter 5, Paul begins to show them just exactly what we leave behind when we leave grace. When we leave the truth that we are fully saved and fully justified and begin to add to the work of Christ. So, so what is it exactly that we leave? What is he showing us? What do we fall away from? Right? And what, what did... He, what do we fall into when we return to grace? These are the questions that we want to wrestle with this morning. What do we fall away from? What do we fall back into when we, when we turn back to grace? And what we find is Paul starts to show uh, the other side of that coin, just what that sinking sand is. We see uh, two sides of a grace coin, if you will. One side would be grace alone, that which we know to be true. And the other side is, is grace plus whatever we add. As we explore, we'll see four what I call dualities, four areas in which Paul is saying that you can have one side or the other. You can't have both. You can't have a coin sitting on a table on, on both sides at once. It's either one side or the other. There is grace or there is grace plus. There is not a, a sharing of the two, a commingling of the two. Um, the first duality that he shows us in, in that very first verse of chapter 5 is, is this idea of freedom versus slavery. 
that, that under grace, God has called us to be free, but that as we revert away from that, as we move back toward uh, a law, works theology, that we are moving actually back into a form of slavery. Uh, there's a burden there. There's a great burden that goes with trying to measure up among uh, a law, works-based theology. Paul begins reminding believers of that freedom they're called to, that the grace of Christ has set us free, but the Galatians still moving back towards that yoke of slavery that came with the law and the sin that inherently we, we are pulled towards because of our flesh. And that slavery, that's a strong term. I realize it's a strong term in our country that it immediately brings back an image of, of what we learned about maybe way back in school and, and still wrestle with some of the ramifications of today of African men and women brought over against their will and, and forced to work in, in horrible conditions and um, Many times they're even sold by their own tribes. It's, it's horrific what happened with slavery in our country. And, 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 and it, it, our minds tend to go there. Uh, the Israelites uh, had a, a different maybe experience with slavery. Still not as um, pretty as they were in Egypt, correct? But um, when they were pulled out of Egypt, when God set them free, this would be the background of this conversation, uh, that all of a sudden after they're out in the desert for a while, they have their freedom and they're moving away from this slavery, they begin to want to go back. They begin to say, we had it better in Egypt. At least in Egypt we ate well. At least in Egypt this happened. Even, even though they're seeking to go back under this yoke of slavery. Paul also uses that term yoke that you, that you want to come under again, this yoke of slavery. And the yoke was something uh, that was used on these beasts of burden, whether it's oxen or horses or cattle. And these beasts would be tied up to a burden for centuries. We've done this for work that was too hard for humans to do. We would set these beasts of burden up with this yoke uh, as they plowed fields or carried loads that were too heavy for men. And, and that yoke kept those animals attached to that plow or attached to that load, leaving them unable to leave it until... The work was done, and the master unhitched them. So, so we see this picture of not only are we going back under slavery, but we are yoked to this load that is too heavy for any man to bear. And, and I know that's kind of a, a simple explanation in that, but in this, like Paul is saying, the weight of following the law, the weight of trying to measure up under the law is, is too great for us. Christ has freed us from the burden of sin and the law. It is a tremendous burden. Jesus acknowledges in the book of Matthew when he talks about even exchanging his yoke for ours. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As Jesus said these words, he'd been speaking to crowds throughout Jerusalem, people that would have known the weight of the law as their, as their leaders actually were adding to the law to help them follow this and, and were looking down on those that they deemed unable to do so, even though truly uh, these spiritual leaders were unable to do so themselves. Uh, and he said, I want to give you this lighter yoke. I don't want you to be under that burden. I don't want you to feel like this constant, I have to measure up and I keep failing, and I have to measure up and I keep failing. He wants to, to take that, and in fact, ultimately, he would exchange his light yoke for that very heavy yoke we pull when we are under the law. The grace-given salvation that Jesus gives us would have us be free also from the shame and guilt of sin. 
It would have us be free from the constant measuring of our lives versus a set of expectations. Whether God-given law or a man-made law such as the Pharisees had or even laws of our own making, maybe social expectations we feel like we have to come under, uh, that, that Christ would say, no, you are free from that. I think sometimes, though, we struggle to realize um, our freedom in Christ, what he's truly done for us, because we have a faulty view of sin, a faulty view of sin. We look at sin as if it's always a choice, like our choosing to go away from God. And I think sometimes that could be seen as true, but it is lacking. It's not an all-encompassing definition of sin. If we look closer at what's going on in our hearts when we try to follow the law and we fail and we sin, what is, what is truly pulling us to that? Uh, I'm reminded of Jeremiah who tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Other translations in this verse would say the heart is desperately wicked. Uh, I love to listen to the uh, words of Martin Luther King. He's a great orator, and he used to talk about how the long arc of the universe bends towards justice. And, and in some reason, that, that came to mind. I thought the arc, the long arc of our heart bends towards wickedness. It's just our natural state that, that we are not good. No one is good, not one. That our hearts bend towards wickedness even against our own will. And try as we might, we'll always have those darker parts of ourselves that seek to control us. Paul himself reminds us of this stronghold with that very word slavery he uses here in Romans 6. and 6.16 he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? either of sin, which leads to death. And I'm going to pause it right there. Paul is continuing our argument that sin has domination over us. Sin is so entwined in our flesh and hearts that, that we are slaves to the very things we would like to say we choose to do. Saying we choose to sin helps us feel like we have power over it, as if to say, I can just stop it. And anytime I can stop it. That's terrible counseling, by the way, okay? <laughs> anytime I can just stop. And, but really, we don't have that power apart from Christ. Sin, sin will always have dominion over us. And even under Christ, we will battle sin until the day we reach glory. <clears throat> Thankfully, that passage continues in Romans. In the following verses, uh, 17 and 18, it says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's kind of an odd statement. We don't usually bundle the word free with the word slave, but coming out of that slavery of sin, when we become slaves to righteousness, it truly sets us free. A slave to righteousness is free. It's an adopted member of the family of God. That slave status gives way to a family status, and that we are set free from sin in order to be that slave to righteousness. And Paul's fear is that the Galatians, and, and many times us as believers, would rather resubmit to that uh, slavery of sin, to that slavery under a law that we can never attain and fall back under the heavy burdens that go with that. So the question in, in, the, in the freedom versus slavery realm and this duality is, is will we be free or will we fall back into works righteousness, seeking to measure up to a law, whether it's the biblical law or a self-made law or, or societal expectations that don't line up with what Jesus would have for us. The second duality is this, is that, that we have advantage in Christ under grace versus disadvantage uh, when we are tied to the law or works theology. Um, 
Paul says in, in verses 2 and 3 of Galatians 5, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Other translations, uh, instead of a uh, translated advantage, they said, instead use the word value, showing that, that when we move away from a grace-alone theology that we begin to devalue Christ. I love the way Timothy Keller puts it. He puts it this way. He says, Paul wants the Galatians to remember that you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. He is either of all value, all of the value, or he is without value. If law obedience becomes part of their system, it is their only system. Justification through law is self-salvation. It is to be alienated from Christ. We cannot hold on to grace if we are living by works. As I was reading this, I, I thought about before I began teaching in public schools, which is what I've done for the past couple of years, I was a children's pastor. And I watched over and over again as, as adults were returned to church because they had become parents. And, and they wanted their kids uh, to be raised with a, a system of values, with a moral code. They wanted them to be good kids and virtuous kids. And they thought coming back to church, that's, that would be a good way to do that. On the surface, they would claim, you know, I want Jesus for my kids, but, but really they're thinking, I'm going to screw my kids up. I don't know what I'm doing. The church can help. <laughs> and they would bring them into church and, and, and hope that they come out uh, a little more virtuous than if they had tried to raise them on their own. Uh, even more sad to me as, as a children's pastor, as somebody who's looking through what we use as a church to teach kids, you could actually find curriculums that went along with that, things that were meant to be taught in a church for kids programming that would lean highly on a virtue end, highly on a this is how we need to act. Look at what this Bible character did. Don't you want to act like that Bible character? All the while diminishing Jesus as the hero of the Bible narrative. It would teach kids how to make great choices. It would teach kids how to follow a law. But it would never show kids that Jesus is the center of the story, that, that he died for us. He did the work for us so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. It doesn't take much Bible study to realize that the law presented in Scripture is too high and to attain inevitably leading to failure. It will always lead us to failure. Also, again, uh, as mentioned before, we saw religious leaders over and over adding to laws. Uh, the Pharisees adding to these laws that were already in place so, so we wouldn't break these laws. So you can break these laws because we made them, but, but you better not. And, and following the rules created more rules, which created more disadvantage for the law. This is something, honestly, that still happens in modern settings. A lot of us uh, maybe have come out of places like this that, that things were added to, to what we already knew we were to follow. Uh, I love one of my favorite works on grace is by a man named Philip Yancey. He writes a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he recounts a time, it's a little outdated now, uh, of when he went to school at a Bible college. He says this, in an era of mini skirts, deans legislated skirts be below the knee. I didn't have a problem with that. My daughter needs to be modest as well. But, but then it says if a student wore a skirt of dubious length, the dean of women would require her to kneel to see if it touched the floor. Slacks, slacks on women were forbidden, except during hayrides, when they must be worn under skirts still, <laughs> for modesty's sake. A rival Christian college went so far as to ban polka dot dresses, since the dots might draw attention to a suggestive part of the body. 
Male students at our school had their own rules, including a restriction against covering the ears and a ban on facial hair. Dating was strictly regulated. Although I got engaged before my senior year, I could only see my fiance during dinner hour. Now, I, again, I have kids and I have no problem teaching them to be modest. That's important. Uh, but overemphasis on the law will always lead to extra laws. Overemphasis on the law will also tend to divide people into groups rather than unite us. We are called to be united as believers, and that overemphasis will always divide us. These groups uh, can be mirrored in churches today uh, that have not broken free from a lot of legalism we still see, uh, and, and they are these. You've got ones that uh, love the law, love these rules, and they'll dive in gladly and follow them. They love the workings of the church. They love it, and they'll, they'll just do it. That's one group. You've got another group that says, you know, I'm going to just withdraw from it. I'm going to get out of this fellowship. I'm going to get out of this church because, yes, I can't do that. That's not enough for me. They're probably the most honest of the crew. And then you have ones that fake it. You have ones that, man, they'll talk a good game today. But the rest of the week looks completely different. They're leading a double life. Because they're, 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 they want to measure up. They want to be accepted. I think the most honest group are the ones that leave. But hypocrisy can be found in, in each and every one of those groups. And it caused me to wonder as I was thinking through that, if there's anyone here today that's seeking to avoid grace by seeking justification through law or, or faking it like we have it all together. I think Christ would have us lay that at the cross and take up the advantage of following him. We need to accept his grace and live in peace and forgiveness. To us, rule followers will never be perfect. And as somebody who, who spent time faking it, that gets old and tiring. Christ has a better way. I love how Yancey finishes up the passage that I began for you. He says, the spiritual games we play, many of which begin with the best motives, can perversely lead us away from God because they lead us away from grace. Repentance, not proper behavior or even holiness, is the doorway to grace. And the opposite of sin is grace, not virtue. The opposite of sin is grace, not virtue. Paul reminds us that we feel the law justifies us if we can attain better standing with God and people by being a virtuous person, then we have to be obedient to all of it. And it's something wholly unattainable. Grace says you were given justification through the work of Christ. Again, I think, too, as some of us, I, I know myself, I left some of those legalistic settings uh, to try to break free of that. Sometimes this still doesn't hit home for me. Uh, and that's when God reminded me, you know, remember the story of Mary and Martha. Remember Jesus coming to their house, and Martha is all busy preparing. She's being the good host. She's getting everything done. She's doing all this work for Jesus. She's trying to, to prepare the house and prepare the meal and clean and do all the things and, and, and Mary chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus, to rest in that moment with him. And I think if a lot of us are honest, we're, we're Martha. We're, we're trying to do all the things we're trying. And, and not necessarily uh, consciously saying this is what I'm doing to get approval from God, but, but we are that. We, we say, look at these things I've done. I've, I've been involved in this. I went on this mission trip. And, and, and what Jesus really desires is us to be, to be a Mary, to just rest in the finished work that he has 
offered for us. So, so will we rest in that? Will we honestly take advantage of all that Christ has to offer? Or do we move back to the disadvantage of the law? The fourth duality we see comes in verse 4. And it's that, are we going to be part of a body? Are we going to be part of the body? Or are we going to be severed from Christ? Strong language. Are we going to be part of the body? Are we going to be severed from Christ? Verse 4 says this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. First, let me point out that this is not a passage saying that we can lose our salvation. Some people have taken this out of context and want to bend it towards that outside of the rest of Scripture. But as, as we look at the whole of Scripture, we see this is not a possibility. Uh, if true salvation is a work that we can't accomplish, then it also stands to reason that it is a work we cannot undo. And so, so just let me rest at ease in that, uh, rest you at ease, that this is not a verse saying that. But what can be drawn from this verse is that a believer falling away from grace... Leaving the leadership of Christ is also, in a sense, leaving the body of Christ. For Christ is the head, both of us as individuals and as the church. 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us that every man is headed by Christ. And Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 reminds us of that he is the head of the church. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined together by every joint in which it is equipped, with, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Language used here is used throughout multiple places in the New Testament. It reminds us that those falling away from grace are apart from the body, are apart from Christ's leadership. And are going their own way. And if we are to look at that verse we just read in Ephesians, are, are not working properly, thus hindering the church. We need the church, and the church needs us. One of the parts of, of this particular body of Mercy Hill Church that I love the most is my coffee group. I love being able to be around like-minded men, seeking to live by grace and helping each other uh, as we try to walk and follow Christ, letting us know when we go headless, when we leave out from grace, okay? The reality is that it's, it's hard to live under grace on our own. It's hard to live under grace on our own. We've been taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to, to muscle through whatever life throws at us, and, and it's hard, I think especially for us men, to admit, you know what, I, I can't do that on my own. I can't, I, that's something I can't do. But you know what? We need fellow believers to help us stay the course and to remind us to live under grace as, as part of a fellowship of believers. The last duality we see Paul mention is this. It's, it's those who are under grace have a hope for the future versus those who have fallen away from it have uncertainty about the future. Galatians uh, 5, 5 through 6 says this, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That, that hope that we're waiting for, um, this righteousness uh, that, that we will receive in, 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 
this moment in the eternity is what theologians call, theologians call glorification. This glorification, this, this time when, uh, until that point, we're still wrestling with our flesh. We're still trying to move towards following Christ and being like Jesus. But in this moment, in this moment where we get to step into eternity uh, with God, that, that we are glorified. We are made ready uh, to spend eternity with God and made ready to be in the presence of God. And we'll, we will be that righteousness that now we have through Christ. But notice how this verse talks about that. It says, we wait for it. We don't work for it. It's yet another part of that unmerited, un, unearned favor of Christ given to us who believe. One of my favorite theologian pastor ever is, is a man by the name of John Stott. passed away uh, some years ago. Uh, he, he's just an amazing mind. He said it this way, we do not strive anxiously to secure it or imagine we have to earn it by good works. Final glorification in heaven is a free gift, as free as the gift of our initial justification. So by faith, trusting only in Christ crucified, we wait for it. Living outside of grace, seeking justification through works, can only lead to uncertainty about our future state. The question, if you're living under that, you have to keep asking yourself, how much is enough? How much is enough to, to get in to heaven? How much is enough to pay off Peter at the pearly gates? Or whatever image you have of coming into that moment. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I, have I accomplished that? It's, it's constant uncertainty. Or what about those who completely leave it and have no idea what that finality holds for them. Will there be an eternity they step into? Is this life it? Uncertainty. Christ would not have that for you. Christ would say, the very grace I offered you to come and be a part of my Father's household, to be a part of his family that will save you from your sins through the work I did on the cross also is given to you this, this moment in eternity that you will be glorified, that you will be able to spend eternity in your Father's house with your heavenly Father. And he gives it freely, gives it through grace. With grace, we can rest, truly rest in the finished work of Christ, both now and forever. In closing, I want to look at this last section of Scripture that we had, these last few verses in 1 through 9. Uh, starting with verse 7, it says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The persuasion is, is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And to me, this is kind of where Paul takes a practical turn to, to introspect a little bit. He says, well, here's, let me paint for you what's happening when you go this route, what you, what you lose, what you leave behind, and, and what you're walking into. Now he starts saying, let's look at how this happens. Let's look at how this happens so we can avoid that. We don't want that to happen. And, and so I love other translations at this part where it says, who hindered you? They actually, where he starts out saying, you're, you ran the race well, you're running well. They use another racing term of, of who cut you off? Who, who, who cut you off? Who got in your way? So in these, in these closing moments, that's a question we can ask ourselves. What, what cuts us off? For some of us, it may not be this idea of legalism. Maybe, it, maybe it's some other action we have or a belief we have that's, that's leaving us from grace, but what, what cuts me off from, from resting in that grace, that finished work of Jesus? Where, where do I struggle with staying under grace? 
in saying that, I want to encourage all of us. Uh, no one in this room is perfect at following Jesus. What we want to happen in our Christian life is similar. Well, the way I thought about it is what we want to happen in our stock portfolios, pretty much. Okay, We want to start here and just immediately jump up as fast as we can in a straight line. But what really happens in those and what really happens in our Christian life is we go up and then we go down. And we go up again and then it goes down and up again. And if done well, just like a stock portfolio, our Christian life will trend upward. But there are those hills and those valleys all the way up. I was listening to something Beth Moore put out uh, last week, and she said it this way. The life of the believer is a cycle of rediscovering that there is no substitute for Jesus. The life of the believer is a cycle of rediscovering that there is no substitute for Jesus. Nothing I can do, nothing outside of him, that he is wholly sufficient for me. So how can we be reminded of that? How, how can we better stay this course? And I think from this passage we've been looking at today, we can distill three things. First, we can be careful how we measure ourselves. Be careful how you measure yourself. When you measure how you're doing, when you're looking at what's going on in your life, are you looking at other people that have it all together and you wish you could be that? Which is far easier now with social media. Are you, are you getting on an Instagram and saying, man, they always look happy. Why am I not happy? Why don't, what am I doing? Be careful how you measure yourself. Or maybe it's, it's somebody that's super spiritual. And you say, man, why, why can't I follow God like that person? Be careful how you measure yourself. Remember, when God looks at you, Christ follower, he sees Jesus. And he is in this process of sanctifying you just like he's sanctifying this other follower of Jesus that looks like he has it all together or, or this other person that looks like they enjoy life way more than you. He's sanctifying you too. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Who, careful how you measure yourself. Be careful how you measure others. Uh, I love the time we're in, especially being in a city like Memphis, where we're starting to uh, really have honest conversations about how we look at people that are different from us and how we, how we think about them and how we would uh, judge them in our heart of hearts, even though we may say we're not, and even though we're trying to move towards not. How do, how do I measure others? Do I feel better than others sometimes? Do I look at others and say, well, I do this, so I'm, I'm better than you. I, I am a chief offender in catching that in my heart. I, I'm better than this person. I, I've got it all together. I'm reading my Bible. I, I... Check that. Be careful how you measure others. And be careful what you listen to. You know, this whole started, that, that, that statement where it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This was not people coming in and giving them a list of 10 things they had to do. They said, here's just one little thing. There's one little part of the law that, that we feel like you need to follow that you're not doing. We know you accepted Christ. We know Paul said it's grace alone. But here's this one little thing. And all of a sudden, this one little thing starts creeping in and, and becomes this disease that starts to pull this church away from the grace of Christ. It starts to pull these people away, and it pulls them away in different ways. Maybe it's people that said, you know what, I hear that, and I see that in my Bible. Maybe that's something I need to do. Or, or it's, I, I hear that, and now I'm seeing other people doing it. Maybe that's something I need to do. And, and before you know it, the whole group is being pulled in a wrong direction. Be careful what you listen to. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Paul's final warning, as is, is he's gone through this, and, and where some of us tend to go, uh, that maybe you had not found, like I identify that much with what you're saying today, but, but maybe you, you swing to the other side. Paul says, don't, don't overcorrect. 
Don't, don't overcorrect. And anything, a pendulum can swing too far. He says, Galatians, you're, you're here, but I don't want you to swing past the grace of Jesus and come all the way over here, using this grace as a license to do whatever you want. He says in verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't overcorrect. Don't, don't let it be a license to sin. Grace is a free gift from a loving Savior. We can't use it as that free pass to sin. Instead, we have to show our thankfulness by loving God with all we are and loving the people around us, serving them and not ourselves. Three ways we can stay, and then, then we'll close. It's, it's how, do we have, how do we measure ourselves rightly? How do we measure others rightly? How do, how do we know what to watch for when we're watching what we listen to? And the first thing I would say is, is we need to stay in God's word. That's our authority. That, that's where we go to figure out what this life of following Jesus looks like. I love that at the church we're trying to do that together through our CBR journals. If you've not got one yet, I would encourage you to get one. Uh, read God's word. Seek to meet Jesus there and rest in the grace you find there. The second thing we talked about some today is, is you've got to do it in community. This is not something designed to be done on your own. Resting in the sufficient grace of Christ is hard when you're by yourself because your flesh will constantly want to pull you away from it. You've got to have other people that can help you say, hey, man, Brad, you're messing up, <laughs> and you need to get back on track. And the, and the third thing I say, so we're, we're going to look in God's word. We're going to do that in community. And, and the third thing that he mentioned in verse 13 was, was we've got to serve one another. We've got to, we've got to look outward. We've got, we've got to diminish ourselves so that Christ can become greater and we can, and we can serve those around us. And if we'll be in God's word, if we'll do that in community, and if we'll serve one another, we'll have a far better shot of resting in the grace that Christ offered for us. Rest in that finished work. I love, we're about to sing in a second, um, Be Thou My Vision. It's one of my favorite hymns. And the last verse just struck me today as I was looking through the lyrics of it. It says, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. And I underline that, my victory won. There's no work I have to do. There's nothing else that needs to be added. Christ won the victory now and forevermore. And I can rest in that. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, we're going to invite the um, team from serving the Lord's Supper and the band back up. Um, but just as you leave today, think about those things. Think about what cuts you off. Watch what you listen to. Watch how you measure yourself. Watch how you measure others. Rest in the knowledge that the victory has been won and there is nothing else left to do. Let's pray.